0: Unbound. 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 unbound, unbound, This is Unbound, the podcast that tries to nudge the boundaries of philosophy and this is Kay and
1: Giuseppe and
0: with you and a bunch of other friends at the new school we are going to push the boundaries of philosophy. Are you ready? Let's begin our journey to become Unbound.
1: Hey, in today's episode you will hear Madison Gamba and I talking to Mariam Mazzar. Mariam, Will tell us about what brought her to philosophy, and specifically to the New School's Philosophy Department. We will discuss the relation between philosophy and political activism, particularly as regards the recent rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. We will talk about how the canon and diversity fit into one's role as a philosophy teacher, and Mariam will explain why we should think of philosophy as a story about the world, rather than a truth about the world. Finally, we will talk about the New School, and Mariam will share her experience with writing a thesis and some tips about life in the department and collaborating with our peers. At the end of this episode, courtesy of Simon Critchley, you will listen to Eat Your Funky Design," a Heidegger-inspired track by Simon Critchley and John Simmons. Sit back and enjoy.
0: Hello, this is Unbound, the podcast that tries to redefine the boundaries of philosophy. In every episode, we invite a guest to discuss philosophy with us. My name is Madison. I'm a master's student at the New School for Social Research, studying philosophy. And before introducing our guest for today, let me introduce our other host, Giuseppe, who's also a master's student in philosophy.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Giuseppe. I'm also an MA student at the New School for Social Research. And in today's episode, I'm excited to be interviewing with Madison, a friend and a PhD student here at NSSR. I'm speaking of Maria Massar, Mariam got a BA in psychology and philosophy from the American University in Cairo, in Egypt, and then she came to the New School for an MA in philosophy, during which she wrote wrote a thesis on suffering and communicability between Arendt and Adorno. Mariam is now a PhD student at the New School, working on Hegel, critical theory, Arendt, feminist theory, social and political philosophy, epistemology, social epistemology and decolonial feminism, And since 2017, she's also been working as a graduate teaching assistant at the New School, and she's now also a teaching fellow. So, Mariam, this was the formal introduction. Now, feel free to give a more personal introduction of who you are, if you will.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this wonderful um, and very dignified introduction. Um, A more, let's say, informal introduction. So yeah, I've just been at the new school for um, officially five years now. And as you've seen, I think of myself as someone who has a fairly eclectic approach to philosophical questions. So generally, whenever I'm interested or curious about something, I throw myself um, into it without feeling too committed to being you know, singular or coherent in my philosophical interest. So I think that would be maybe the more quirky um, reading of my experience at the new school and in philosophy in general.
1: So why did you decide uh, to study philosophy? Because, you know, we, we heard that you started from a BA in psychology and philosophy, but then there must have been something that must have pushed you to say, well, I actually want to, you know, keep studying and reading philosophy in particular and dedicate not only a master's, but a PhD, which, you know, it's many years of your life. So is there a reason, something that made you say, that's what I'm going to do?
2: So I'll be as brief as I can about this, because this is really lifelong work that is to be done (laughs) in therapy in general. But um, I I grew up fairly multicultural. So I was born and raised in the UK to immigrant parents from Egypt. I eventually moved to Egypt when I was 12. Um, And what happened is I was so consistently overwhelmed by my cultural, both interiority and exteriority in ways, that I immersed myself deeply in a variety of thinkers, diasporic and otherwise, and felt that the only thing truly worth my attention in terms of an education is trying to figure out human behavior, trying to figure out um, what it means to belong to a specific culture, asking questions about culture and history in general. And so what happened was I I thought the avenue would have been psychology. It made sense to me that psychology was the best way to try and understand how to kind of unify our many selves. Little did I know, of course, that there was a specific scientific pretense in psychology as a social science that I found um, inherently facetious. I found it quite deceptive. Um, And I just so happened to be taking a class on Foucault when I had this discovery, (laughs) Okay. And so through Foucault, I, I came to the realization that um, philosophy really is the best avenue, um, I think, that methodologic, like methodologically and from a literary standpoint can help me um, invest myself in the political and social questions I'm, I'm very curious about.
0: Right, especially because philosophy can help you in so many different fields. So it's just okay. going to give you that broad skill set to really go and assess what it is that you're interested in.
2: One of the perks of philosophy, in a way, is that it, even though, of course, every methodological venue of philosophy will claim to have some um, overarching ideological commitment, ideally mm-hmm. philosophy in its essence, um, is, is very open, to, it's, it's very self-reflexive and very open to yeah. kind of, um, let's say, disarming or questioning itself.
1: So you grew up between the UK and Egypt. So my question is then... What made you think of the US and in particular of the new school?
2: There are kind of two strands of the story. I think if we're to take a step back, the first strand is um, my university in Egypt is a it's a liberal arts university, fairly elite, um, unfortunately, Um, and the department was surprisingly good, um, the philosophy department there, although unfortunately was very much headed by a group of white foreign men. So there were no Egyptians teaching philosophy at the time. So that already slowly became a motivating factor for me i was like okay well i'm not seeing anyone who looks like me in this field in my own country Mm -hmm. um and yeah and so what happened is because of the resources the professors had and because they were the ones who brought me into critical theory they also kind of led me to the new school as a potential um place to pursue my education and i was deeply attracted to the new school because um it reminded so The student body that started the new school reminded me of myself. It was a bunch of scholars who, for political reasons, weren't able to practice what they wanted to in their homelands and had to move. Um, And I feel very similarly about doing feminist philosophy in Egypt, and so that was really a huge motivating factor for me in terms of choosing the new school as a department. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's managed to serve exactly that function. I feel very liberated in what I can study and do and talk about at the new school.
0: I want to start with a really general question and then we can move more into concrete specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, just give us an idea of this relationship between politics and philosophy and your concern with it.
2: Again, to go back to kind of maybe a historical point here. Um, when I So I had been fairly immersed in all kinds of very cool decolonial, postcolonial feminist diasporic literature um, in high school and prior to going to, to college. And when I started doing philosophy, despite my being in Egypt, I was introduced to a, what seemed like a very urgent um, sort of historical story about the questions philosophy should be asking. So suddenly I was, you know, it was about Plato and his concern about the artists and Kant and whether or not, you know, he was like, he wanted to concede a census communis, right? Like suddenly I was reading a lot about libertarianism, individualism, all these things. And the trouble is at the time, we weren't taught that this was a story of sorts, a myth, right? A specific, like curated experience of reading philosophy. And so what happened is at the same time, I was experiencing a lot of political upheaval in Egypt. It was, I started my freshman year in 2011, which is when the uprising right. began. And there was such a bizarre disconnect. I was both like so enamored by Rousseau and by Plato at the time and found what they were writing to be incredibly important and Kant as well for the revolution. But something also didn't fully translate. And since then, I've just come to the realization that you can't do thinking without being invested in politics too thinking and politics go hand in hand um mm-hmm. i'm a strong i'm a strong you know like uh, i'm strongly committed to relationality as um just generally as a like a founding understanding of the human condition and i think that insofar as we exist with others um you know we are constantly beholden to a certain type of political let's say um commitment um that constantly needs to be renegotiated and rethought so you know, So even though thinking, at least on the Enlightenment view, appears to be this fairly neutralised, objective um, practice, I-, I think thinking is never apolitical. Um, and that's really my starting point.
1: That's interesting, and it reminds me of something that one of our professors said to me. I asked her, what is it like to be a philosopher and an activist at the same time? And I was asking if she had had troubles, or what was the opinion of her colleagues in, you know, seeing her so active in politics while being a, an academic?
0: Mm-hmm. And her
1: answer was, what do you mean? I'm almost first a political activist <laughs> and then the two things really go together. So we we've you, you've told us what your areas of interest are. You know, you're doing a PhD, so at, at some point, I don't know if you've already started, but you're going to have to write a, a dissertation, right? So I was wondering, given what we've been saying about the connection between your philosophical work and the political effect of it. How is this way of seeing philosophy affecting, or as affected already, your choice of what you are going to dedicate your doctorate to?
2: Wow, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me answer first briefly, kind of just to get straight to the question. Um, so, so as you can see, like for me, thinking and politics can't be can't be basically separated yeah which means on a basic level um my dissertation is aimed at beyond you know being a certain political and let's say conceptual intervention it's a methodological um intervention and the point there is to simply say i'm very interested in looking at the history of philosophy and understanding um why it is that this tradition has so in my case, um, spoken about or written about right uh, suffering, sorry in the way that it has, um, and why Auschwitz suddenly became this break, this huge literary and political moment for philosophy and where we go from there now. Um, and so now to maybe like kind of open up into a slightly less direct response. Um, I'm a brown woman and I usually hate talking about myself in those terms, but it matters. It has to be said. And yeah. that means I really have, you know, I'm constantly brought back to both my foreignness and my otherness as a woman. And in an interesting key, looking at suffering and language, um, I find is it's one of the best um, circles in philosophy that have done this has been that of decolonial feminism and black feminism um, specifically and that's Mm -hmm. hopefully where my intervention is going to end so I'm sort of doing both a methodological intervention insofar as I'm quite fascinated by why the German um, and Jewish thinkers um, felt that Auschwitz represented something so and it absolutely did so huge for philosophy and history but I'm also very curious to see um, the limitations of that paradigm and what black um, and decolonial feminists have to offer on that front um and so yeah that's to me where politics and philosophy um i mean i just I, I let's just say i'm quite frustrated by a tradition that has made the question of suffering quite esoteric so to speak and i think in order to understand phenomena like refugee camps um and internment camps we have to have a slightly more everyday um way of understanding um these yeah these experiences and i'm very grateful to feminist thinkers for that
0: i want to follow up and ask a question about today and the very prominent Black Lives Matter movement that we're living through right now, especially from recent events. Not that Black Lives Matter as a movement is new, but with the murder of George Floyd, we see it everywhere because now there's this idea that there's really no more excuse. You can't sit back and be complacent and say, I'm not racist. You have to be anti-racist. So do you have any thoughts about your work and what's going on now and has it inspired any of your ideas or do you have anything to say to activists who are working specifically in black lives matter and and this movement
2: god i i both have a lot to say and also i'm really trying to practice understanding and learning my limitations because i don't think this is I really, I think one of so just on a very basic kind of human level, the greatest lesson I've learned as of late is that um, you know I my brownness um, is a very separate experience to that of blackness, and although we often find solidarity in describing ourselves as people of color, one of the greatest um, I I want to say like lessons of humility I've learned as of late is to decenter myself as a brown woman, especially as a as a fairly educationally and financially privileged brown woman, I would say. And so that's kind of the starting lesson that I've learned. Um, I'm trying to kind of pass this answer out in a couple of ways because there is the personal strand, there's the activist strand, and then there's also the educational strand, right? Um, And on the activist strand, I would say I only have a lot to learn. I mean, I really have... So little to say because at the end of the day, although I consider educational activism, the kind especially I'm invested in with regards to my own country, um, quite important. I also recognize it as an incredibly um, sometimes solipsistic or kind of very uh, just fairly removed experience to what's happening on the street. And I say this because I have colleagues who were arrested and almost killed um, in Tahrir in 2011. And there's a very different kind of there are very different ramifications for being out there versus being you know kind of piled over our books and trying to find the most appropriate ways to talk about what's happening philosophically and with that I have been obsessed with the news for the last two months I honestly I think yeah I think Black Lives Matter came along and liberated us all when we needed it Mm -hmm. the most and there could not have been a more opportune moment although unfortunately it had to be um, on the back of human beings and human lives but there's something about the fact that the most disadvantaged group in our society was able to essentially elevate their voice in a pandemic in which I guess people felt that their discomforts like staying home were like a huge injustice and remind us of what actual injustice is and so on the activism level I am so I feel so liberated and so thankful um, for everyone who has put themselves out there and for those who've been organizing marches and all all, all kinds of, all the cities basically across the US because it's really put into perspective what the issues with our government um, are and who is really suffering right now um, and it's certainly not the people making sourdough at home, so that's <laughs> just just to put it out there, right? Um, but to, so now to just maybe end my, my response with an answer on the academic front, it just so happened I had started writing about Foucault and race <laughs> when all of this began and um, and I'm so grateful to one of my colleagues, um, Gonzalo Bustamante, who's now... He was in the new school. He's now back in Mexico. But he and I have had a conversation back and forth about this essay. And it's basically culminated in looking at um, one of Foucault's last lectures of, in the Collège de France, where he basically, very briefly, and in a very kind of sneaky way, makes a transition from talking about governmentality um, and neoliberalism to racism. And he describes racism as essentially... Um, one of the techniques of biopower that not only decides who can live, so it organises life in a, on a very molecular level, right? So if we look at census, if we look at birth control population, that is one of the kind of key or defining features of, um, um, of the biopolitical order. It also... So the, so the trick with that order is that it needs racism because racism also explains why so many have to die for others to live. So it's a very radical and very kind of, like, in Foucault's work, it's quite an explicit moment because he basically believes that, like, if you were to ask yourself, well, wait, how is it that in modernity, we now have the ability to live so long, but black brothers and sisters are dying every day quite easily, right? And he's like, that is the defining feature of racism. It has to kill to let others die. And so the paper essentially just looks at this kind of conception and takes up Michelle Alexander's work on the new Jim Crow along with Kath, um, Catherine McKittrick's stuff on herbicide. And, and there's also a text by Judith Butler that came out recently about the right to breathe. And essentially the paper just um, tries to kind of make explicit Foucault's otherwise ambiguous conception by saying that like, one of the motivating um, features of biopolitical society is white supremacy. And that we have to give it a name because white supremacy is the order that has to kill some in order for others to live. Right. Um, So, yeah, so I've been writing a paper about white supremacy and race, and it's been incredibly illuminating and is helping me um, get in touch with really important parts of black literature um, that we need to read and know right now.
1: So you were talking now about this paper that you've been writing and we've talked about your thesis on suffering and language. And in, in, in relation to this connection between philosophy and political activism, let's let's use this term. Mm. But in one of the things that you sent us that I was reading this morning, th- this was something that really caught my attention. I was reading your paper on uh, rethinking charitability. At the beginning of the paper, where you set up you know, what you're going to do in the paper and you say you're going to interrogate the relationship between engaging philosophy professionally and political activism. But then you argue that and this is the, the part that I love. You say teaching philosophy is a fundamentally and not just peripherally political activity, which is connected to what you were just saying to us earlier. But here you you use the word teaching. And and I found that very interesting because you know we've been talking about doing philosophy in the sense of you know, your work as someone who reads, someone who thinks, and someone who produces philosophical work. But of course, to be A professional philosopher nowadays, you know, a professional philosopher is almost always also going to be a professor, right? So I'm really interested in this idea that teaching philosophy in particular is fundamentally political. And this made me think of uh, when I was a high school student. You you finish high school when you're 19 in Italy. There's this tacit understanding that professors are not going to be political at all. You're not going to know what their political positions are. But you know that's that does not exactly have to mean that whatever they teach is not going to be political. Italy is a lot like
2: Egypt. <laughs> There's something like <laughs> don't ask, don't tell rule with politics, which I find so funny for countries that are so politically messy and very yeah, yeah. so. But um, you know, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I feel like philosophy is at war with itself, right? On in the one let's let's think of it as a wrestling kind of ring, right? On the in the one corner you've got philosophy in its essence, just trying to ask good and pure questions, and then you've <laughs> got philosophy, the institution that kind of runs around in capitalism and is trying to fit in. And for me, this is the starting point of the belief that teaching is fundamentally political. I mean, I could argue that even prior to capitalism, that argument stands, right? Because because teaching is about knowledge and it's about power. Uh, it's about empowering people to um, essentially kind of have it find, you know, t- to take control of access and to take control of like their beliefs and all kinds of things. And so more specifically, now that philosophy has this, I would say, uniquely and, and maybe exclusively like kind of institutional form um, in, in lieu of, let's say, the social sciences and other fields of study. Um, it has become like whether or not I, (laughs) I like it, it is political, right? Because we're talking about funding. We're talking about, um, you know, um, who we let into an institution versus who we keep out. There's all kinds of academic gatekeeping, methodological gatekeeping. So there is the very fundamental idea that teaching philosophy is political because it is about empowering our students and sometimes actually doing the opposite, right? Indoctrinating our students, um, And again, although we feel that students have more free will than we're willing to give them, they are also deeply influenced by whatever is kind of floating around in their lives, and especially based on the institutions they choose to be in. And then on the more complex level, when we get to the graduate level um, material, or the graduate level struggle, let's say, it becomes even more politicized, because suddenly we're talking about journals, accepting papers, we're talking about tenure-track jobs, we're talking about postdocs. Um, there is a long, a lot of competition and, uh, there's just, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I've always said, even if you want to study or write the most, let's call it neutralized or perhaps even, um, just like solipsistic forms of philosophizing, you know, if you're thinking about like other minds or what have you, things that fairly, that are fairly kind of, let's say not strongly political in nature, there's still a political choice being made in studying and pursuing these things. So when a when a when a Kant scholar um, kind of like suggests that they are doing you know real philosophy, I often still want to ask, yeah, but what can we investigate what that actually means? Because your choice of doing Kant and actually maybe even purposefully avoiding, let's say, feminist philosophy, is a political choice. Um, so this is not to ju- it's not to just kind of deflate the concept of, of politics. It's simply to recognise the very real institutional dynamics at play in the world we call philosophy today.
1: Another thing that you say in the in the paper when you refer to Dotson, say that uh, the Western canon is a
2: standard of legitimation in the academy. So uh, Dotson in her paper, she really wonderfully kind of summarizes, she's like one of the ways in which philo- like philosophy becomes what it is, is through two processes. One is of justification and one is of legitimation. And both more or less point to the process wherein a specific very popular story and way of doing philosophy gets to decide what a, what the continuing story of philosophy is so traditionally speaking modern philosophy and platonic kind of philosophy tend to be the father of all philosophy um you know i i imagine for many feminist thinkers who first came into the scene presenting their work involved having to be rejected because that work let's say if it was especially literary or poetic did not conform to standards of like kind of logical, um, Western methodological kind of, let's say, um, questioning or yeah, philosophical, like basically um, let's just say questions, right? And so what that means for us today is very often if you're writing in a methodological key or about subjects that seem to be, there's two levels here, out of the institutional norm. So whether you're in an analytic department or a continental department, or even just out of the philosophical norm, which is, let's say, I don't know, you're writing fiction that's asking important philosophical questions. These are both often um, rejected on the basis that they do not conform to the standard Westernized. And by Westernized, I mean, Hegel, Kant, Plato, you know, just, yeah. mm-hmm. I like to call them like the philosophical, like they're just the philosophical fathers, right? The fathers of philosophy. Think of them as like the Mount Rushmore of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if if it doesn't conform to that standard, very often students and professors alike will perpetuate a certain kind of standard, wherein anything that looks slightly different just isn't philosophy. Whatever the heck that statement means. <laughs>
0: Right. And and what you said about teaching as being political, I think exactly in its simplest form for a university to teach philosophy that's considered more diverse or that, ooh, I didn't come across this in undergrad. It most definitely is something political because you're trying to introduce your students to new ways of thinking. And I remember being an undergrad, I went to Montclair State University and um, my professor, Megan Robeson, who got her PhD from the new school, she went there for undergrad too. I believe she assigned us Hannah Arendt and some feminist philosophers and we were all like wow like oh my gosh this is so exciting we're so happy that we're getting something different because what are we reading you know all these male philosophers which is what it is but it's like oh my gosh i was just assigned a woman philosopher Uh you also
2: say you know so we can teach our students new ways of thinking and the worst part is they're not new They've existed for millennia, right? So, so if we think, for example, back to um, the Kambahi River Collective, right? I mean, these people are writing about queerness and about blackness for a very long time. Um, and it's it's so crazy to me. Uh, so, they, so really, they were writing about the human condition in such a profound way. And they were writing about collective identity, about intersubjectivity, um, before... Even like, I mean, I would say even at the time in which Hannah Arendt was writing about it, but even in in slightly more, I would say, profound ways. I mean, Hannah Arendt wrote a lot of great things, but also wrote an essay about why segregation should exist in schools, right? So my thought is this, why limit ourselves to such a singular story or such a singular curation of philosophy? There are so many imaginative and wonderful ways wherein we can weave stories about how thinking, especially forms of thinking that have had the privilege to be seen and to be heard, have become the way that they are and i don't think the gatekeeping version of um of philosophy or the the gatekeeping kind of myth of philo- philosophy is the fun way to do this i think it's incredibly limited um so so why not open ourselves up to all kinds of different stories that legitimize the importance of not only Kant and hegel because by the way and this is a big part of my argument as well it's like don't let how do i say this Don't let people think that by being invested in feminist and black philosophy, you're basically taking the easier road. I mean, for many of us, like myself, I love Hegel and I will happily study Hegel as much as I want to. Um, And I won't concede myself to simply doing marginalized forms of philosophy either. But I think there are several stories in philosophy where Hegel is important and so is, for example, someone like Audre Lorde, right? And I, I don't see why we can't hold those two things together.
1: So, Mariam, we we mentioned Dotson earlier. I don't know if we mentioned the title of her paper, which is How is this paper, Philosophy, which I recommend everyone listening to go read because it's a great paper and it's very helpful in trying to start and think about these topics that we're talking about. In her paper, at some point, Dotson says Though philosophy can claim to be a self-critical and self-destabilizing discipline, such destabilization is ultimately always a burden that is deflected onto diverse practitioners. Now, my question is, do you think this is still the case?
2: So this is an institutional question. Why? Because in a place like the New School, I've been supported. I've been, I have a community and I have the resources and professors who have encouraged me um, and have helped me do the kind of work that is kind of like, making philosophy a kind of self-reflexive field and, you know, looking into very diverse um, and productive avenues of philosophy, as well as the, quote, traditional ones. And so that I'm, I'm incredibly grateful because being in the new school and being in New York City and being in the consortium, so being with Columbia and with CUNY, has introduced me to a host of thinkers and people that have introduced me to specific conferences, specific workshops over the summer. That's really... That, that is why, as a diverse practitioner, I get to have a foot in both worlds. Now, I can't really speak on the behalf of other institutions. I know some are a lot more traditional than others. Um, but what I will say is if you don't have the right community, um, you will often find yourself having to pick a battleground. And I would love to envision a world and philosophy in which we don't have to pick the one and can fight many battles at the same time. Um, so that's my thought. I think, unfortunately, maybe on a mainstream level, a lot of, um, quote, marginalized students, whatever that means as well, find themselves having to write. Well, they start off by wanting to write about their own condition, which I think is a really powerful and wonderful thing. But then it becomes a professional burden. Suddenly, all you are is your race and your gender identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would be incredibly liberating to be able to write about anything else at some point. It w- It's just very difficult to to do the transcendent thinking philosophy asks us to do when we are constantly brought back to our body and our material condition.
0: And do you also, do you have any frustration with this? I don't know about you too, Giuseppe, but sometimes I find frustration with this. How do you feel about the fact that We are expected and and we have to work through this traditional canon that we've been, you know, fed throughout these years as philosophy students. So again, reading Descartes, reading Plato, reading Aristotle, um, whom I love, but, you know, going through this timeline of philosophers and being expected to master these, to put it bluntly, this group of men who have, you know, (laughs) dominated philosophy and we're expected to master to master those before we even have the audacity so to speak to branch out that's always something that frustrates me it's like i just want to write about what i want to write about i don't want to think through the vein of so-and-so as i'm doing it in order to prove that i'm philosophically capable if that makes sense i just
1: jump in quickly uh, with an anecdote i did philosophy and politics in my undergrad in the uk I know many people had this experience where you've got a, a, an undergraduate degree and you've basically never read any women almost. And then mm-hmm. when I came to the new school, in my second semester, I decided to take uh, Chiara Bottici's class on gender, for which Marian, by the way, was the teaching assistant, which was a absolutely transformative class for me and literally changed uh, the way I look at philosophy and got me reading so much more stuff. So maybe taking that class was the best choice that I did as a student but I remember when I uh, registered for the for that class people that I talked to and said you know oh yeah so this semester I'm doing a class on the Greeks and the class on gender people were like but why are you not taking the course on Kant or why, why are you not taking the course on Descartes or whatever was off was on offer that semester and the subtext to that was you can you know read gender studies in your free time or before going to bed you know there's this idea that uh, feminist thought or gender studies or transgender studies is just stuff that you can read in your own free time but you should really make use of these few years that you have in university to be to really grapple with those texts like you know, the Critique of pure reason or the phenomenology of spirit.
2: That's so fascinating. I'm going to kind of jump in with a joke in response to that, which is, you know what? if we can read gender and feminist philosophy before and let's say like yeah all kinds of other interesting philosophy before bed then kudos that's actually a huge perk because that means these people know how to write I will just say this as much as I enjoy Kant and Hegel oh my lord they're terrible writers I mean really that Hegel is notoriously a terrible writer and um god I really hope my professors don't come after me for this but it's just <laughs> It's just, I do think it matters that we we write philosophy that speaks to the world. Now, here's the point. I don't mean let's burn the philosophical canon because it's so poorly written. And I mean, of course it isn't. In many ways, it's also quite illuminating and quite telling of a specific literary tradition, right? That's That is what I enjoy about reading, quote, canonical thinkers, is I get to translate. I get to... of look into the context in which they were writing and do all this fun work of understanding what the heck hegel means when he when he says like self-consciousness right um but really i think it's a huge it's a huge um win that we've reached a point wherein philosophers who are writing about feminism and about gender uh, write books that are read before we go to bed or on the subway Right? And that's not to say they're not as philosophically rigorous. They absolutely are, but they're also fascinating and they're also daring. And so that's that's a, a point I have. I think we have to remember, consist. and I know maybe this kind of takes us out of the realm of being immersed in philosophy as a truth of the world, but philosophy is a story about the world, right? And so maybe I'm bi- just being, you know, I'm too committed to realism here, but I constantly remind myself that these are stories. Again, there is a process of curation here, Um, and that even again in choosing to sort of knight a specific series of texts as canonical, there is a set of presuppositions and values going into that process. Now, why that's important is because it means we're all entitled to our methodologies. So we all famously do this thing in departments where we love to, um, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, but kind of dunk on each other's methodological commitments, right? So the psychoanalysts have beef with the critical theorists. The critical theorists hate um, you know, the phenomenologists. I mean, this is all kind of anecdotal, but the point here is, we all really love this kind of rich cultural sphere that is philo- you know philosophy doing so to speak but we're all also entitled to those methodologies and so we can fight for them so long as we accept the like the kind of very basic pre- like pre- um, pre- premise that we're all choosing these commitments, that there is, it's not that we've kind of inherently found our way into truth, but that we've kind of stumbled upon. And usually I always, this is a joke I always like to say, it's like, we always either stumble into Kant, Spinoza, or Hegel, it always starts there. Sometimes if you're lucky, Wittgenstein, but for the most part, you start philosophy there and then you kind of find your way into varying avenues. And so if we're honest about the fact that these are choices, Power to you, read whatever and everything you like, and let's have it all, because why not, right? But what I refuse to believe is that the curated story we've inherited from the history of Western philosophy, which, by the way, has taken us years to also depart from, right? I don't think it's a victory that we're now just learning about, quote, diverse forms of philosophy. I think it's a huge failure on our part. Other departments have reached that point before we did. But the point here is I refuse to believe that that story is inherently true, or that it's valuable because it's presented as the most coherent story. I think that is an insecure and unimaginative way of doing philosophy, and I personally don't want to engage in it.
1: I have a question for you, maybe moving on from this topic, but relating back to something that you said earlier, you mentioned the fact of being at the new school, and the new school being historically a different place. It's even in the name itself, right? The new school. Mm-hmm. And what i to ask you is, I know that you work a lot on Arendt, and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've worked closely with Richard Bernstein, especially in relation to your work on Arendt. And I wanted to ask you, what is is it like, first of all, to work with Richard Bernstein, who is himself a legend, basically, (laughs) and then to be working on a philosopher like Arendt, who has taught at the New School for years. So not just in terms of what kind of connection do you feel between yourself and Arendt, Being in the same place where she was, and through Bernstein having known her for years, but also as being at the new school offered you the chance to access knowledge about her work, both you know materially, like her notes or whatever, and both in terms of studying with someone that knew her personally. How is that opportunity of being here helped you, if at all?
2: No, it's totally helped me. I mean, that was actually one of the main reasons I came. and I'm very grateful. Working with Dick Bernstein is super enjoyable, albeit very intimidating. Um, So I remember I I submitted my first ever rent paper, and that's just, Let's just I'll just say that it was quite mediocre in ways and he was quite sharp with me about it. But I remember he gave my paper such attention. I mean, there was so much detailed feedback, even though, you know, I took it quite harshly because it was just I, I felt like I did a bad job. And funnily enough, with his feedback, two years later, I defended my master's thesis on a rent with him and he literally told me he was like you write about Arendt beautifully and to have that kind of recognition after being sort of torn apart a little bit was (laughs) really really I was so grateful for it so Dick is is both a very personal um like he's he the way he talks about philosophy especially those philosophers he knew personally um is very loving and it's very personal which I'm I'm so so appreciative um for him for that Um, But more importantly, he's a very detailed reader. And so the feedback he'll give you is the kind that you need to shape your paper into something meaningful. Um, In terms of a rent, I took the one class with Dick Bernstein, which was a lot of fun because it was kind of interwoven with a lot of personal anecdotes as well. But really, uh, one of the great features of the new schools that you're often running into professors who, if they're not working on a rent Uh, in a central manner. They're usually kind of working on her peripherally. So for example, Jay Bernstein is another figure who um, is very invested in Arendt. Simona Forti, for example, who often comes and visits from Italy, teaches Arendt and often tries to kind of find these interesting intersections between Foucault and Arendt. So with the help of all of these um, different professors, I've been able to read people like Cavarero who've been doing incredible work on her, um, a lot more contemporary and asking very exciting questions. Um, You know Judith Butler, um, a whole host of thinkers, really, who try to bring a rent into the c- conversation. But one kind of lost note on Dick Bernstein that I love so much is people often criticize a rent because her work is quite nebulous and because she's often wrong. But one of the first things Dick Bernstein taught us was like a rent is wrong very often. She constantly contradicts herself. But you, what you want you want to do is you want to use a rent against herself. Um, and that was one of the best pieces of ad- advice I've gotten with Arendt, because it really it helped me write something really wonderful, um, in which I essentially had to sort of put origins of totalitarianism and the human condition against each other. And it was so much fun. So it really, the new school has been a perfect place um, to do a rent.
0: That's really awesome. One of my professors, who I mentioned before, Megan Robeson, who went to the new school, actually has Hannah Arendt's pencil sharpener. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember this was like senior year of undergrad. I went in her office. She has this pencil sharpener on her wall. And I'm like, what is this? She's like, oh, um, there was a bunch of Hannah Arendt's stuff or whatever that they were getting rid of or something. So I grabbed it and I was like, oh my gosh. I was like touching him. Like, awesome. <laughs> how is it? Um... How was defending your thesis? What kind of process was that like? I really wish
2: that I had not made it as big a deal as I did. If there's any advice I'm going to give people who are thinking about doing a thesis is demystify the process immediately because what you're doing is constantly, and this, by the way, this is really applicable to a dissertation as well. I'm so grateful to Chinzia Urza, who's our professor in the department. She was heading prospectus, which is the group wherein we basically start writing our dissertation and we, we kind of we review it with one another and give each other feedback but i wish i had had that class earlier simply because i turned this thesis into a monster it shouldn't have become and in some personal ways i understand why it had to be was my first thesis in philosophy it was a huge deal and it was being supervised by richard and jay bernstein who are pretty you know huge and intimidating figures in our department um (laughs) who i now work with very closely and i'm very grateful for but um what I needed to do was, for starters, I needed to talk to people, my colleagues especially, more about my work. I needed to review my work with people, so I needed to not be afraid of showing them my work. And I needed to make it a manageable task. And, and often what we're told with dissertations is, look, you'll have plenty of opportunity to write a magnum opus down the line, You'll have postdocs where you can write all kinds of peripherally, kind of like, um, like, just peripheral arguments for different things you want to do. But you don't have to do everything now. And had I known this, um, it would have really helped me recognize that I get to decide what the limits of my thesis are. So I spent a good six months kind of agonizing over how big this project was going to be. And then I'd gotten some advice from, from Jay Bernstein and he helped me with my bibliography a great deal. And he was like, draw the line somewhere, know when to end. And if it weren't for that, you know, what's funny is the brunt of the the thesis was written in about two months, most of which was written on an airplane, I recall, like a trip to London and a trip back. (laughs) And that's really all it needed. Um, The defense itself was so enjoyable because it actually brought to bear all the anxieties I had about writing it. So what they're doing essentially in in kind of asking you to defend your thesis is asking you to defend the choices you've made and the limitations you imposed and also the excess that you may have fallen into. Um, And again, that's just, it helps us to take a bird's eye perspective on this kind of messy procedure of like framing a thought or an argument. So it was overall a thoroughly enjoyable and very intimate experience. I have to say, it really brought me closer to my professors and to my colleagues. Um, I wish I'd been less afraid, and I wish I'd been okay with the idea that it will take quite a bit of failure before it before it you know sounds right or looks right. Um, so yeah, just demystify the process and really get realistic about what this task is supposed to accomplish. I think that those are advice pieces of advice that I think are really helpful.
1: Always on the practical side of things, let's say, when you start doing philosophy, the thing you do the most is reading. And then you're expected to write uh, an undergraduate thesis and then a master thesis and then a PhD dissertation. So how much time do you spend reading? How much time do you spend writing? How has that changed?
2: I will admit um, it's become a more liberated process for sure. I'm a lot less afraid to write than I was even at, you know, the end of my master's degree. Um, I've learned to be very open to making mistakes, which means I write much quicker and with a lot uh, a lot more fervor and a lot uh, less anxiety in some ways. Um, but my process is honestly quite, um, I would say, inconsistent depending on what it is I'm writing for. Overall, uh, I read a lot more philosophy than I ever did, but I read it a lot quicker, which means... I'm not I don't agonize over the details a lot on the first round of reading but then I come back to a text again and again and again and one practice I've learned is while reading writing matters too so as I'm reading kind of translating what I'm getting into either just like a scribble on a on a notebook or on like a a series of summaries on um on my computer are a really yeah. helpful way of kind of just solidifying the reading process and the learning kind of like curve in that experience but really I don't know it's different things for different people so I have learned better to write about 400 words a day maybe let's say four days a week than to write once a month and come back to it and do another kind of gigantic kind of like piece and then another gigantic piece like it really helps to have a to-do list and unfortunately again I hate to make it sound this kind of crude and pragmatic but really having a to-do list in terms of so you know first there's a Foucault exegesis that has to happen then there's a Butler exegesis that has to happen then I have to write a paragraph wherein I synthesize these thoughts that is usually the starting process for me and then everything else kind of morphs together and i make the sound like it's way more wonderful than it actually is it can, can be very messy i've just accepted that there will be days where i'll wake up and it's incredibly convoluted at the point that i'm trying to make is just not coming to me the connection just isn't being made mm-hmm. um, and there are days where it flows quite smoothly and here is essentially my kind of my concluding note on that read your friends and let them read you. So there are no, truly, I think our colleagues are the greatest teachers we have in a degree, almost in a way that I think is quite distinct to that of our professors, because they're honest, because we're close to each other. There's a certain connection with um, giving each other feedback that you just won't get with um, people who you're slightly more intimidated by, I would argue. And so when you're feeling really stuck, review your thesis or argument, like pass it by a colleague. Um, and learn to read your colleague, colleagues too. So reading your colleagues and correcting their work and helping them with feedback teaches you to identify the same in your own work. So really, I just, I don't think, for, although philosophy feels very lonely in the way we do it, I don't think it can be done alone. It's a conversation and it demands the presence of others to help question our basic like arguments, help us think of different texts that could be helpful and help us synthesize thoughts that may seem obvious in our heads, but maybe don't translate on paper. So yeah, just kind of, breaking down the process into kind of a list of tasks and having one or two colleagues, trusted colleagues who I know will kind of really give it to me straight after the paper's done have been a godsend for me over the last couple of years.
0: And speaking of to-do lists, I actually just started um, really making to-do lists for my days. It's really easy to check in with yourself and say, Hey, here's all of these things that I could do today when you have it, written in black and white it becomes you know easier to motivate yourself and if you check off oh i did this i did this look i just checked off six things i did you feel more accomplished and then in turn feel more motivated so i think to-do lists are extremely important and also like you said writing 400 words a day even if you wrote two sentences a day even if it's terrible even if it's it, <laughs> just yeah, you're writing and i put a note in this in the message saying, "I'm petrified of writing," yeah. because that that's seriously an issue I have. Like, like I'm I'm petrified of I writing. I want to get that as a tattoo. I That is such a motto. I am.
2: It is a. It's part of my human condition. I'm petrified of writing. I totally relate to that. You it's have true. to ask yourself as well, who am I writing for? I mean, I get that we we're writing for some fictionalized future version of ourselves that's this like hopefully famous and whatever kind of figure, but like. Yeah really it it takes a lot of courage to just sit and write the most pretentious and maybe even problematic right and selfish kind of piece of writing wherein you just get to express your inner thoughts and trust me they never look the same on paper as they do in our heads i mean we think we know ourselves and then we put it out there and it's we know ourselves in a completely different manner right um i really i i totally share that struggle but i i do think we have to kind of get in the habit of recognizing that even someone like can't had also an incredibly regimented to-do list and kind of like a daily schedule that allowed him to deal with that petrification in some concrete in some material way right like i think honestly the worst writers are the ones who kind of get up sit down on a computer and are like hmm, here is my magnum opus done in 24 hours like truly that is the worst kind of writer i think the best writers are the ones who whose writing shows the hesitation um and the humility as well as the brilliance of their thinking but as well one of the best to-do lists is the one that says throw the to-do list away so <laughs> I, I truly so first of all guys like have fun like That you can't, we cannot engage the stuff that we're doing, which is incredibly alienating and serious and so high stakes all the time, if we're not having fun. I cannot write if I'm not reading fiction or if I'm not watching science fiction and fantasy. Like, without these two things, I don't know how I would do philosophy. These are really serious things to me, as well as, of course, having a social life. So, having my community, a, a group of people who can really fill my head with noise in a way that is like, very different when I'm writing quietly alone. These things are just as important as the time-stamped 815, do one line of, you know, Greek translation, uh, 930, um, read some Spinoza, right? Like loosen up a little bit and I think recognize that the the parts of our life that so basically take time to not be a philosopher too. I really think that we can't do this kind of stuff if our entire life is completely engrossed in, quote, being a philosopher. Again, whatever that may mean. You need to be a human and you need to have other things going for you. And I think, you know, one other kind of motivating force behind that is having a sense of humor. Like, I so I always have this conversation with my colleague, Miranda Young, who's also at the New School. Um, and we just love laughing about philosophy. I mean, if you look at the symposium, for example, even. what How does the symposium, you know, what is the context of the symposium? It's a bunch of philosophers, friends of, um, quote, Socrates in that moment, drinking wine and being absolute nutheads, you know? Like, they're they're getting completely drunk. They're laughing. They're, I I think, at one point um socrates kind of asks alcibiades to flex his biceps and he kind of squeezes them and i mean that's funny stuff and i do think you have to if you're going to think seriously all the time you need to have a sense of humor about it like you genuinely have to be able to laugh and to recognize the limitations of the seriousness that this stuff brings about because i'll tell you this much in dealing with covid and with um the the situation with black lives matter the the Perhaps the best way I've been able to decompress has been through humor, has been through talking to people and laughing about things and watching comedians who talk about being black and who talk about the pandemic, right? In ways that are lighthearted as well as they are serious. Um, So, and I also have, for example, Simon Critchley to thank for that because he's a great example of being a humorous and serious thinker in our department.
1: I love to uh, watch Simon Critchley's trader for Applied Agur. He did a trader for these podcast that he's doing on on being in time and the trader were just amazing it just loved it
2: he also wrote this hilarious um so i think it was the la review of books asked or commissioned a bunch of um philosophy professors to write about covid and his entire paragraph was about how this feels so stupid he's like what am I supposed to, like, what What do you want me to say that's going to sound profound? Like, this is not a time for us to pontificate, truly. Like, this is the time we need to actually take a back seat and be quiet. But it's it's so funny. And, and, and that way, it's also the stuff that non-philosophers I know love to read the most. And and what more could you ask for, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so- I don't know
0: if you also saw his dance track that he recorded. <laughs> yeah, he puts <does> some <laughs> great stuff on Spotify, for sure. Oh, my goodness. He, he's so busy, Like... He, and because he's been emailing the cohort okay here's an attachment of the apply to your episodes even though you can they're online they're on youtube and they're coming to spotify i think and at the end of one of the emails he's like oh also just here's a little fun music track dance track that my friends and i made it's called eat your funky da and it's like this, i haven't heard that one i'm gonna look at oh it up. my god like okay just listen to it <laughs> and you're just gonna laugh you're like oh my gosh, I can't believe he actually made this. I was dying laughing. Oh, it's just so funny. Like, he's, he's such an amazing person. I was, I was just so appreciative of that. I was like, thank you for making me really laugh like during this chaotic time and just weird time. It was just great. Okay, so one last question before
1: we finally let you go. <laughs> so just tell us if you have like something that you're working on right now, some project, some paper, you're going to go to a conference, really whatever you want to say, to the word or rather to the three people that we listen to these.
2: (laughs) I'll be honest with you, you know, I've spent the last five years having incredibly crazy conference filled and summer school filled, uh, you know, summers. But this year, the exciting thing that I'm doing is just quietly chipping away at my bibliography and reading books in preparation for my oral exams in the fall, as well as just starting this dissertation on the right foot. So in a weird way, um, and I'm so immensely privileged to be given this space um, being in lockdown has allowed me to actually cultivate a very meditative, rhythmic, quiet space for writing. And I read my summers are usually full of conferences and travel, and I'm so grateful. And even though it sounds absolutely boring, the exciting thing I'm doing this summer is just quietly writing with myself and with my colleagues. Um, so, really, more than anything, right now, the focus is to just get this dissertation up and going. Um, My hopes are to get involved in things once COVID resolves itself, you know, Um, but for now I think the best we can do is kind of just have a playful and kind of quiet and intimate relationship with philosophy in the form of reading and writing every day in very small doses. So anticlimactic, but the truth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's great. So uh, I don't know if Maddie an, an, has anything to add. Nothing from me, but thank you so much, Mario. Thank you so no, well.
2: I much. Mean, thank you so, thank you so much. really this was such a wonderful chat and incredibly cathartic in a time in which i feel we're constantly questioning who we have to be as philosophy students and stuff so thank you both for this so much
0: i agree and i thank you as well it was really amazing speaking with you and getting your perspective and just i think it was a really productive conversation thank
2: you i'm very humbled i'm very humbled thank you
0: so that's it see you next time feel that pain go by Bye.